Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Earl. Hey. We've decided that this episode we're going to discuss a few different topics that might seem unrelated, but we're lumping them together under the category of myths, common misperceptions about what it means to be working class, I think, specifically. Um, Working class is a label that has been overused in the discourse and misused in the discourse Really, especially since the 2016 election, something that I think we'll we'll get into as we're going on. But sort of the impetus for um, today's show was a recent tweet by uh, Democratic presidential candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden. Noah, do you want to read that for us? Uh, Sure. So the tweet, being middle class isn't a number. It's a value set. It's about the issues that matter to every American family, a good education, economic opportunity, access to quality, affordable health care. We've got to rebuild the middle class and this time ensure everyone comes along. If everyone comes along, it's not the middle anymore. <laughs> well, I, I think what a lot of people latched on to is, is the first line especially, being middle class isn't about a number. It's especially what caught my eye when we were thinking about this episode is this idea that middle class is something that isn't actually related to how much money you make, which I think is silly. Right. Well, it's because in, so America, the the U.S. political discourse, right? Mm -hmm. Until about basically 2016, you were on the fringe if you wanted to talk about class Mm -hmm. within American political discourse. The only way to talk about class was... Uh, I'm going to cut taxes on the middle class or I'm mm-hmm. going to cut taxes for working class Americans or whatever. Well, working class wouldn't even be brought up much a lot. Uh, the Not common move by the Democratic Party would be to say working families rather than you know frame it right. in terms of class. But Point. the succinct way of addressing this problem that I've come up with is this idea that class is more about aesthetics and values, as Joe Biden puts it, than something – to do with the money you make and how you make it. Right. I mean, Biden touches on a bunch of stuff in his tweet, but it's it's like a lifestyle thing, right? It's sort of like, what can you expect when you, like, quote unquote, make it to the middle class, right? Like, mm-hmm. you should be able to, um, y- you know, live comfortably, take vacations, retire at a decent age, send your kids to college, do all these things. Um, and that's imp- basically impossible for the vast majority of people. Uh, but the thing is, in the United States especially, I think, what ends up happening is is that people f- want to believe that they're middle class or feel like they are. So I think they end up sort of wh- – when the politicians are talking about middle class – That more, means more, me. Right. Exactly. More people are thinking that that's what they are. And it's really when you start breaking things down and go, oh. well, man, I actually don't really have any retirement or I don't have any of this. Who is in the middle class? Right? Yeah. Like, that, right? That's exactly correct. It's – uh, the kernel of truth at the center of this particular myth, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, you could almost argue that like the point of the tweet is unfortunately correct as far as the U.S. goes because we don't like to talk about class because we right. don't like to create this idea that uh, even though in our actual society it does matter how much money you make, it does and, – and it is a very – it is in tranches that there's levels to it. Right. When it comes to class as a – specific version of that, you can't talk about it in those terms. You have to talk about it in aesthetic terms because uh, what's that quote about the poor being temporarily embarrassed millionaires? Uh, John Steinbeck. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. In the US that, you know, we're all brought up to think or we're all, we all have this message pushed on us, especially the more towards privilege that mm-hmm. we are, 
that we'll all make it someday. So, you know, up until that moment, it's just you're on your way. And you haven't gotten there yet, but you'll right. get there. And to some extent, I think the the line can be adjusted down from Steinbeck's time. Now, instead of poor people, we have temporarily embarrassed middle class people. Yep. Right. You know, people <laughs> yeah. who aspire to one yeah. day be middle class. Even just that, yeah, it's gotten worse, right? Yep. And that just from in that sh- relatively short amount of time, right? And so that that type of narrative, though, I think we, you know, we know is beneficial to those who benefit the most from like the capitalist rat race, right? Which is Mm -hmm. to say that if the onus is on the individual to do better, to work harder, that the reason that they're poor is mistakes of their own, then it doesn't, there's no reason to look outward and to look at the people who are like, well, if if I don't have this money, who does? It's like, well, there's an answer to that, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Well, and I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of intentional obfuscation around that. Uh, oh, Ryan, yeah. you shared with us something that I had completely forgotten. Um, even when American politicians are willing to put a number value on what it means to be middle class, mm-hmm. that number value is wildly high. It is, yeah. um, in in the 2012 election campaign, Mitt Romney cited middle class as being, you know. 200,000 to 250,000, you know, that, that would be the upper end of middle class in his definition. But right. even at the time, that was like 85th, 90th percentile of, yeah. you know, income in this country. At a certain point, it stops being a useful signifier if it encompasses everybody. Which I think is it, it stops being middle. Right. Which right. I well, think is the point. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. the idea is to make it such a vague signifier that it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where it, it it sort of reaches like peak aesthetics right. because, again, I am uniquely informed by this because I deal with kids who think they're middle class even when their parents are literal millionaires who don't have to work, mm-hmm. you know, who are working essentially to have more money but who could easily just stop working tomorrow and live the rest of their lives on passive income alone. Right. So. The fact that a kid like that grows up thinking, oh, I'm middle class or I'm – some of them even think I'm working class, the same as all of these other people. So, you know, why don't they have it as good as I do? Why don't they have the suburban house and the private right. school and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the chance of going to college without student loan debt and whatever the heck, right? They – when you ask them to put a number to this stuff, when you ask them, you know, what do you think the median household income is? What age do you think most minimum wage workers are? That kind of thing obviously they're teenagers so like they're gonna have a hard time with that anyway sure yeah but their lived experience also makes them think that like oh yeah middle class most people are making like 300k a year how much could it cost it's one banana basically ten (laughs) dollars yeah exactly you forgot the michael but we'll forgive that it's fine it's implied it's an arrested development quote (laughs) you're right those unfamiliar but um i i think if you were to like put a definition on what a lot of politicians mean by middle class it's roughly the 50th percentile through the 95th percentile. Mm-hmm. It is a very skewed idea of what middle is. Yeah. 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 Well, even, I mean, even Romney just in that, in that uh, article, he mentioned he, he didn't put a, he didn't put a floor on it. He mm-hmm. said it's, it's like 200, $250,000 and below. So yeah. he's basically saying everyone is middle class except for people that make more than a quarter million a year. Granted, this is, again, 2012. And, but and I think also in the article it noted that Obama had given a very similar definition yeah, 200, of you know, I think. middle yeah. class. You know, right. it's yeah. A bipartisan definition, yes. you might say. Um, right. yeah. We're all socialists here mm-hmm. on this show. You might not know this yet, but we are. <laughs> we are. Can't and confirm. I, th- I think there's something we have to say about like what the role of the term middle class really is, which is if you're going back to the Marxist view of things, it is there's a working class, you know, people who make money by selling their labor and a capitalist class, people who make money off the labor of others by owning property. And there's not really a room for a middle there that you either own property or you don't. But right, right. over the course of the 20th century, the middle class became the dominant sort of view in American politics. And it's interesting how that came about. Well, it was purposeful, right? Right. Like it was – there was a conscious attempt by American policymakers who were – I mean the farthest thing from socialists, right? Right. Starting with progressive era reformers 
and uh, going right through your Rockefeller Republicans and people like that to establish this idea that the middle class was, you know, decent, hardworking people who would derive the majority of their income and whatnot from their job, but they would have a little left over to spend on vacations and uh, health insurance and which would be employer provided. Lawn care. Lawn care. <laughs> The lawn was very important. Right. Uh, their car, their kids, sending their kids off to college without debt and, you know, socking a little bit away to maybe take a painting class here or start a little shop over there and mm-hmm. then one day retire comfortably with a pension <laughs> and, you know, live the rest of their lives in relative comfort having worked off their debt to, to a, a productive society or whatever the hell. And then everyone below that was supposed to be – you know, the people who regrettably through some fault of their own mm-hmm. in these people's minds just weren't ever going to make it to owning a house and were never going to make it to, you know, having all of these other signifiers. And we'll, we'll give them little scraps from the table here and there to keep them mollified. But but that's about it. And to alleviate their own guilt, certainly. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure. You use the term signifiers. And I think in many respects, signifiers have taken the place of – what um, a, a material definition of class, you know, instead of defining working class via the, the way we would, we just did earlier two minutes ago, people now define middle class as Midwestern or have a hard hat or work in the auto industry. Mm-hmm. And the issue here is that you end up with uh, definitions of working class that include car dealership owners in Iowa and exclude, say, baristas in New York City because they live in New York City and as such are a coastal elite. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it also obfuscates sort of the the distinctions between like owners of capital and the investment class and everybody else, which goes back to that Marxist uh, theory that you're talking about between the owners and the people who have to sell their labor. Yeah, because th- th- there's a worship of nuance among these people. You know, there's – you look at the basic Marxist division and they go, well, no, it has to be more complicated than that. It doesn't. Right. But you have to make that uh, – you, you have to create that third set of people. You have to create that nuance where there is none, not mm-hmm. really, not materially, so that, again, you can – Say to the middle class, you're paying into the system. You've bought in. You drank the Kool-Aid. We're going to give you the things that come with that. Right. And you get to hope that one day we promote you into the the hallowed ranks yeah. of the true bourgeoisie. And then to the working class, they go, you know, uh, we're sorry. We wish we could help you out. But clearly, you don't want it hard enough. And so there you will toil in obscurity for the rest of your lives. Right. Mm-hmm. And and part of that I, I have to imagine is because in order for you at this point in, you know, like late stage capitalism, that in order for you to achieve any of these things like retirement at some point or any kind of meaningful savings or anything like that, you basically have to involve yourself in one way or, or the other in some kind of passive income, right? And And I hate that term because passive income really is just things that you make through investment, which is to say that that's somebody else's labor, right? right? That's unpaid. The pr- profits that come from investment is somebody else's unpaid labor. So they need this sort of middle ground to say, well, I'm not the guy that's, ex- I'm not the guy that owns the factory. I'm not the one that's exploiting the workers or whatever. It's like, well, you totally are, <laughs> you know, yeah. like by, by taking part in this thing, you're, you know, and I think we'll get to that in a later like part yes. of the show, but I just wanted to, yeah, as long as we're talking about it, I just, Want to get that in there? No, that's exactly right. Um, you you hear about financial, uh, you know, the the financial planning industry, right. the financial advising industry. That's not a thing that existed to the extent that it does now before the Great Recession, for sure. Right. You know, it it was a thing that rich people used to learn how to evade more on their taxes and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And now you just, if you're above a certain income level, you just have one. Like it just it it's supposed to come as a package deal. With making a certain amount of money right. so that you can figure out how in your old age you are going to manage to have the same lifestyle as your parents and grandparents, theoretically, who, you know, just got that through having a union job yeah. and like a society that actually gave a damn. That That's literally it. That's right. the only difference. Yeah. Because I think there's, again, going back to the, the whole point about uh, there are certain people in this country – 
a lot of them currently running for the Democratic presidential nomination, that I think worship complexity. They love the idea of process and nuance and, you know, little loopholes and whatever and taking advantage of this and whatnot. Like the lives of people are a video game basically. Mm. And if you can just sequence break it the right way, you get the society that you want. And the truth is that that's just not the case. And ultimately it just comes down to the choice of do you want a society that cares for the people that live in it or do you want a society that doesn't? That's it. The choice is literally that stark. Yeah. You could I mean you could say it's a choice between a social society and an anti-social society. You you might say it's a choice between <laughs> socialism or barbarism. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I think the importance of this subject is that like the obfuscations we've been talking about, the little the weirdness about how we def- define class has become a significant force in American politics. It has become what we would now call right-wing populism is mm. is the popular term. Uh, we've mentioned 2016 as a key date in, uh, already on this episode. And the election of Donald Trump has often been cited to this uh, block of, you know, the quote, white working class, which is a term that is loaded in a lot of ways because the working class is mostly not white. It is disproportionately mm-hmm. black and Hispanic and, you know, racial and ethnic and sexual minorities. But nevertheless, they have been a stand-in for the working class writ large in the discourse since Donald Trump's election. And and that's because of, you know, we treat signifiers for the actual thing. We treat having a factory job in the Midwest as the standard bearer for what a um, middle class or what working class is and exclude all other of the many other possibilities. I I feel like you almost have to if you're um, first of all, this is private bugbear, but again (laughs) the the whole slam on populism, right, Right. is number one, the idea that it is automatically a right-wing ideology is extremely common in this country. Mm -hmm. And then number two, the idea that like Wanting politics that is best for the largest number of people mm-hmm. because of their material circumstances is illegitimate. Right. right. Like it, it's treated as you cheated at politics mm-hmm. by like wanting to give people things. Right. There's definitely been this attempt to sort of bundle together a, you know, the right wing populism of Donald Trump and his 2016 campaign and the populism you see on the left in the form of, you know, Support for Bernie Sanders, for example. And and you have to conflate those if you're one of these people who just, you know, wants the market to run everything mm-hmm. because you otherwise have no choice but to recognize that one of these and, – and I think this gets to mm-hmm. what you're talking about. One of these, the left-wing version to be clear, mm-hmm. is based on actual material conditions that are on the ground, what people are actually going through. One of these – is based on like having a brain that last was active when you watched like a Petticoat Junction episode. <laughs> well, really, I mean, there's a danger to letting class be misused in this way, to treating uh, everybody in New York City as some sort of elite as, a, as opposed to, you know, the right. middle America. Senator Josh Hawley, I, I don't know oh, if yes. you're familiar with him. This has been one of his shticks, you know, posing as populist by pitting working class people in New York against working class people in the Midwest. Effectively is what case, that does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's also, you know, you see this on Tucker Carlson's show if you watch that at all. And millions of people do. Mm-hmm. You might be surprised to hear this, but on Fox News, you know, their primetime host is often will talk about, uh, you know, What's wrong with our economy and, you know, capitalism leaving people behind? And his solution for this is, you know, to give all the benefits to a specifically white working class because these obfuscations about class allow him to bundle that group together. And that has to be pushed back against. And that's kind of why we're doing this episode today. Yeah. uh, So I hadn't heard that sort of monologue or a reference to that Mm -hmm. Carlson stuff until uh, doing, you know, prep for this episode. And uh, I was at first just like struck because I never thought I'd hear words like that coming out of his mouth, right? And then, of course, it became clear that, you know, this this is exclusionary. You're on the right track and so, – I mean sort of. I, I don't know what his motivations are. I'm not going to like try and decipher those. But that type of language and the, the idea that capitalism is failing people, great. I'm glad that people are hearing him say that. But again, he's talking about a very specific 
it's fa- it's not failing everyone. It's failing a very specific that sort of rural. He's pandering to his audience, which is he's a mm-hmm. commercial news broadcaster. That's he's just filler between men and commercials. Like that's why that show exists. So of course he's doing that. And I, I, it sort of makes me a little hopeful because I have to assume that there's at least a small percentage of people that are watching that show and are hearing that stuff and they're having little eureka moments because that stuff has never crossed their minds before. Maybe they're not taking into account the exclusionary stuff. They're just going, man, is it really failing? Like the idea of, of uh, I mean, they mentioned that in that article about the idea of free market capitalism being almost religious and this. And then if, if anybody can break that dogma, I don't care who does it and how it happens, but if it gets you rolling down the right track, then I'm cool with that. Well, what there is in, in the United States and we don't really contend with because you don't want to teach this to kids because uh, either you're afraid that they're going to take to it or, you know, you're afraid that they might think that America is not the greatest country in the world. But there is actually a tradition of right-wing doubt about the free market economy. Uh, you've got people like Tucker Carlson. You've got uh, Stephen Bannon is known for like apparently saying during – uh, speaking engagements and that kind of thing that, you know, like we have to listen to some of the points that the left wing is making. Mm-hmm. And he always impresses a bunch of people who are not political junkies like me mm-hmm. and don't follow what Stephen Bannon is saying. Oh, God, what did I just admit to? Um, anyway, uh, but before them, you have a long tradition of this happening. Uh, I think Rod Dreher was famous for having this shtick uh, about 10, 15 years ago. And everybody was like, oh, it's a crunchy con. It's a conservative who's, you know, questioning uh, should libertarian economics be the point of the right wing? And before them, there's a whole bunch of names that you don't need to know. The point is that there is a tradition of sort of conservative attacks on the capitalistic there, economy. But there's a fear that, you know, capitalism will override the traditional values and the family that, you know, conservatives uphold as the ideal. Yes. Which is always a nuclear family, you know, the the yeah. the man, the the Brand. woman and the two point three children and the yeah. white picket fence mm-hmm. or whatever. And they are very, very they're, white. They're, they're concerned sure. that capitalism will undo some of the racial and gender hierarchies that they've worked so hard to build up. Yeah. Right. And also just, I'm sorry, just in more of a, I mean, I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not going to try and like decipher what people's intentions are or anything, but in more of like a good faith sort of interpretation of that too, is that they, they recognize the alienation that capitalism causes, right? Like whether there are, they are just like, well, you know, I preferred my restaurants the way they were before or whatever, but it could also be too, that like, they know that, that capitalism pulls families apart and, Mm -hmm. However you may feel about the nuclear family, they genuinely believe in it and whatever. And you know what I'm saying? I I, want to get more specific here because we've been talking about Carlson's comments in the abstract. But um, I'm quoting from an article in Vox by Jane Coaston that uh, cites one of his monologues. America's, quote, ruling class, Carlson says, are the mercenaries behind the failures of the middle class, including sinking marriage rates and, quote, the ugliest parts of our financial system. He went on. Any economic system that weakens and destroys families is not worth having. A system like that is the enemy of a healthy society. He concluded with a demand for a fair country, a decent country, a cohesive country. And that's uh, mm. that's where he gets right. you. Sure, sure, yeah. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A country whose leaders don't accelerate the forces of change purely for their own profit and amusement. There's that word, right. change. That's the problem because this is a person who wants to go back – to small town America. Let's just make this clear. Tucker Carlson is an heir to a, what is it? A frozen swan- food. Frozen food fortune. Swanson. Like my man would not have anywhere near the public profile that he has if he were some random person right. in the middle of Iowa, as you put it. He would be a car dealership owner in Iowa. He's right. an elite person posing as, you know, one of us, one of the, you sure. know, regular of folks because, you know, he has white skin. Yes, that's and that's the obfuscation. You know, he gets to pose as, you know, this crusader against the elites when any reasonable definition of elite or upper class includes Tucker Swansby Swanson. Not not only includes him. He's like the picture in the dictionary. He has like four middle names. Yeah. Yeah. So this man is exactly who he claims to be railing against. And he can get away with it because, as you were saying, Earl, I think off air. The, the way in which he construes, quote unquote, populism is right. to pit the larger group, uh, what he sees as the largest group of people, which to 
somebody like Tucker Carlson and a lot of his viewers is, I guess, broadly defined as disenfranchised white people against elites. And this is where I think he gets you because the elites he's saying are, uh, you know, black people, Hispanic people, Native Americans, immigrants, (laughs) anybody who doesn't fit into that kind of Mayberry view of America. And the problem that you get into once you do that is that it allows him to conflate free market capitalism with social liberalism. It allows him to conflate the two Mm -hmm. in a way that like, I mean, potent force, the democratic party has been trying to run on that forever. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but it's this idea of the entrenchment of income inequality and the expansion of child and, and adult poverty, I guess, and, and people in dire straits and all of this stuff is somehow supposed to be caused by not just coincidental with, but like caused by, the fact that we let gay people get married. that That's what Tucker Carlson's view ends up boiling down to right. once you actually like pick it apart. Yeah. And really what this gets you is working class people voting for Donald Trump because he shares their fondness for big trucks. You know, he, he right. wants to be in the driver's seat honking the horn. Yeah. Yep. Um, the, the aesthetic quality of working class is co-opted by people who are the opposite of working class, who are anything but working class. In order to win them over to policies that are obviously hurting the working class. Trump's policies have not been aimed at raising up the auto workers of America by any stretch. Because he also hasn't governed the way that he promised that he would, Mm -hmm. right? Right. I was reading a a profile earlier uh, to to take a – It's useful in campaigning, but when you become the president from the Republican Party, you run up against forces – Within the Republican Party that need to uphold the well, yes, free and also and, you run up against the fact that like he doesn't care or yeah, no, he, he doesn't care those. strongly enough right. to yeah. uh, like to there aren't enough stuff. brain cells left in there to do that. But I was reading a, a fascinating profile by uh, Jaya Sundaresh, I hope is how it's pronounced, in Current Affairs of Narendra Modi mm-hmm. and sort of his populist program in India. And sort of how as chief minister of Gujarat, he was not particularly successful at economic development and also presided over, you know, massive massacres of of Muslims. But he was able to spin that into, number one, the civil violence is ancient history. And number two, the economic development was definitely true. And it didn't leave a whole lot of people in poverty. And it absolutely wasn't entirely for the upper class. Shut up. It didn't happen that way. Um, and now he's expanding that to the entire country. And he's been likewise very, very successful in getting people to buy into that story. Because I think there is in general, I mean, naturally, there's a desire to believe that your country is whatever this means, quote unquote, on the right track. For I think a lot of us, we would rather, you know, the three of us in here, we know what the rea- we know what the realities are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think any of us are made happy by that. Right. There's a real, you know, calm or a real tranquility to thinking, oh, we finally made the right choice. The country is going to be better from now on. And you'll believe anything that gets you there. And I think Tucker Carlson and Stephen Bannon and so on, I think they give these people the comfortable illusion that, oh, no, there are people that are looking out for you, but that have the same values as you do, mm-hmm. that also believe in – I mean this is this is one of the things that I have the most trouble with, again, when I'm sort of talking about my politics. Kids and adults, they just – they don't understand that somebody on the left might also be OK with the idea of hard work as a value. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that people who are on the left might want to be honest or that they might want to be frugal or any of these things because to them, it is an aesthetic thing. The, mm-hmm. the politics are purely – a set of personal values with no material conditions to inform them. And I think Tucker manages to tell his audience, you know, that even among the elites, there's somebody like me who looks out for you because mm-hmm. I too believe in all the things that you do. Right. We spent a lot of time talking about this myth in particular. Um, when we come back, we'll try to shift the subject to other myths the way we intended the show to go. <laughs> Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, joined still by Earl. Hey. And Ryan. Hi. Now, during the last uh, segment, we talked about the members of the upper class taking on the aesthetics and the value sets of the, you know, the regular people, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. to uh, convince the rest of us that they have our best interests at heart. And what we'd like to take this second segment to do uh, is move on to a different myth. The one that essentially that you as a quote unquote regular person can somehow a hack or loophole or buy your way into the ranks of the, uh, this is a phrase from one of the articles you sent us, Ryan, the leisured aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, Love wh- to have an aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, the thing we expressly prohibited in the nation and yet seem to be reproducing anyway. Mm-hmm. There's this idea, uh, especially popular now, because I think, you know, life hacks are now mm-hmm. like a thing. Money hacks and food hacks and whatever the hell, uh, to the point of almost parody now. And there's this idea that you can somehow use the tools of capitalism that ultimately, you know, are the reason that so many people are immiserated and so on Mm -hmm. to somehow escape capitalism. And there's a quote that this reminded me of. Uh, Buckminster Fuller in 1895 said, those who play with the devil's toys will be brought by degrees to wield his sword. And the moment we started talking about this stuff, that was all I could think about because it it really is that, again, that stark. You just – you can't do it. But we're going to actually prove that to you instead of just stating it out. Right? Um, right. Specifically, we're talking about this uh, – I guess group is – feels too strong a word, but a movement, some – they call it a cult in one of the articles. Yeah, it's I'm good with that. Yeah. They use the acronym FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early. And effectively what they do is they talk about how, hey, you hate your job. You don't want to work for 45 years until you you know are too old to enjoy retirement. Right. Here's a simple step you can take to retire at 35 and just hang out all day. You know, mm-hmm. and right. there's – Learn Italian. There's obvious appeal to the idea that, yeah, I want to retire early. I want to get out of this grind. But to get out of the grind, you end up posing it on other people, I think, by Mm -hmm. becoming somebody who is, uh, well, the uh, making money off of other people's labor, as as we talked about in the first segment. You and, you know, with smart investments and frugality is brought up a lot, but when digging deeper into the finances of the people who uh, proselytize about this, they had a lot to be frugal with. They had, right. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they're talking about putting away 75% of their income, you know, so that you can, so you, you do this for like eight years, uh, you know, and you save 75% of your income and uh, yeah, you're, you're done, uh, you're done working, you know? Uh, and it's just like, who can do that? Like what we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, with the people claiming the middle class is a quarter million dollars a year, the median income in the country is $63,000. Like depending on where, and that's, that's house, that's household yeah. income. That's not, right. for, that's not for a single person. Uh, so who can, I mean, the, one of the articles that we, uh, for research was breaking down what $350,000 gets a family of four in a city like New York or Boston. Right? And I'm not going to start talking about like, it's barely middle class. It's ba- it's barely, yeah, it's barely <laughs> middle class. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, but the point being that if an article like that can exist, then for a family that's, you know, making 60 K or something a year, like how on earth are you supposed to save 75% of that? So a big step zero of this plan of the fire plan is to have money to begin with yeah <laughs> right. it's um so these these budgets come out every year pretty much like clockwork I, m- more often than that yeah I, they're well, designed to get people angry and exactly they're they're hate watch they're hate bait <laughs> so but the the thing about them is that they remind me there was a study once that supposedly proved that like medieval human beings could not possibly survive on the amount of calories that they technically could have yielded. And so there was this, uh, you know, decades long debate among medieval historians, like, are we off the mark? Were somehow these people different, that kind of thing. And it just ended up being a thing of like, no, we're making assumptions about their lifestyle that are completely off the mark. That's what it was this whole time. We messed up. (laughs) And much the same way, these articles are expressly assigned to get the rest of us, man. But I think also on some level to get a few of us, to get a few of us to start, you know, they're, they're they're supposed to activate 
our anger center with 90% of the text. And then the remaining bit is just supposed to activate that little bit of aspiration that's in all of us that wants to have a slice of the pie to, you know, look at that and be like, oh, so really, really, it does boil down to more money, more problems. Even if I did make $350,000 a year selling my labor, that wouldn't make me happy. So I shouldn't complain about rich people. I shouldn't worry about what they're, you know, paying or not paying on their taxes. I should just let them run everything. And one day it'll all trickle down to me. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, go-to examples of this, you know, movement in action is uh, this family who call themselves the Frugal Woods. Uh, Their real last name is Thames. They're a millennial company couple who did the nine-to-five nonprofit thing in Cambridge, Massachusetts, reads this article in The Outline, for several years before realizing they were trying to buy their way into happiness and deciding they had to break free. How? By retiring early, of course. Hold the damn phone. I missed the word here mm-hmm. when I read this earlier. Nonprofit? Uh, that's correct. So, Earl, to what you were saying, mm-hmm. in the first place, they were operating in a market with Famously rarefied nonprofits mm-hmm. to begin with. Right. So Cambridge, they, Massachusetts. Yeah. Right. So they didn't even have to work like, you know, a Wall Street job or something like that where they might <laughs> – They didn't have to subject themselves to a Wall Street job. Yeah. They might they might have to feel like maybe their souls are being rent into, which right. they were anyway, but whatever. Yeah. And after, you know, their success in uh, – quote, retiring early, they gained this notoriety, this attention. They were profiled in like NPR and the New York Times. They they wrote a memoir, yeah, a book, book, yeah, book you know, deals, right. preaching to the choir of people who want that to be them, who want to be able to break free from the cycle. But yeah. you're continuing the cycle. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because, yeah. yeah. Because number one, they're landlords. <laughs> the the article you're reading from notes that they rented their uh they rented their house for was it forty four hundred a month I think or it was a 40, year? Yeah, forty four a month now. Forty four hundred yeah. a month. Yeah. They're renting their house for that. They live in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, but they have fiber optic internet. That's important. Right. Um, they're technically still working mm-hmm. uh, because their blog is a money-making venture, and mm-hmm. I think the husband still works for like a political nonprofit of some sort. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's why they were like it took them so long to find their dream house because Ooh. they needed internet so he could keep working. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know everything, and they're still maxing out their like four hundred one k contributions and whatever the heck. They're doing well enough that uh, you know there is there is like a certain amount that yeah. you need. To cover basic necessities, to have enough money left over for incidentals, to be able to fix your car or your computer or yourself, uh, you know, every so often. Beyond that, everything just becomes what stuff can I buy? What experiences can I have? Hmm. So, yeah, when you're earning – if somebody tells you, oh, yeah, great, I saved 71% of my income, your immediate question should be 71% of how much? Yeah. Because – it's a lot easier to save 71% of $600,000 right. than of $60,000, as right. you were saying. There are sort of uh, sister articles to this style about retiring early where uh, meet the millennial who saved a million dollars and you find out that they like got a half million dollar loan from their parents to yes. set off. Yeah. The <laughs> Refinery29, I think, is particularly famous for, for doing this kind of mm-hmm. hate bait where they'll they'll put out like the financial diaries of somebody who makes – like 200,000, uh, at, at like an ad agency or whatever, right. but they insist on drinking the they, free they made coffee it themselves. Yes. Again, they're designed to get people angry, but also I think they're, they're kind of designed to be like, you know, this idea, it, it's weird. It's almost the converse. Like mm-hmm. having this much money can't buy you happiness. So you're supposed to look for a way out, you know, it, right. it, giving you more money won't make you happy. So stop complaining about that. And you go listen to this cult that will tell you to sock away 65% of the income that you don't have in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. We talked in the first segment about how, you know, the myths of uh, a class as an aesthetic quality, they serve a purpose. They are used by the upper class to align their interests with those of the lower class, at least in the minds of the lower class. Um, there's a purpose. There's a political purpose. And so the po- purpose of this particular myth about what millennials can do if they just, you know, are frugal enough and save enough, work hard enough, is to push back against the material reality, which is that we've been left for dead by the recession and student debt and poor paying jobs and the gig economy, which doesn't give you 
pensions and the benefits you need to retire early. Because if you can, you know, work your way out of that, if these individuals can be held up as they did it, why can't you? Then the onus become is put on the rest of us rather than being put on a system that puts all of us in this situation. Right. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly it. If 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 they can if the focus can be put on the individual and either the mistakes that they're making or the or how they're not working hard enough, then there's no reason to question the people who have like basically who have all the money, right? Like that that say like you know that there's that like meme about, you know, how come everybody says like the the people at uh, Burger King shouldn't get $15 an hour, but they don't say that the the billionaire shouldn't buy his third yacht. Or something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So it's just like it's those type of articles that sort of perpetuate this idea that you can just work your way out of poverty somehow magically by following somebody's book or blog right. or whatever um, that sort of perpetuate these things. And then also the tools that they're actually outlining are, you know, they they use this term, uh, you know, passive income, which to most people and, and, and there's a ton of people that are like this, people that are otherwise genuinely good people that are just like, yeah, man, you know, you just got to be smart with your money and invest it in stocks and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's because they don't have that sort of class analysis that says that income, that those dividends is unpaid wages. Mm-hmm. That's where that money comes from. So these people that are like, you got to, you got to buy, they literally say you got to buy your way to freedom, right? Financial independence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that That's not, it's not financial independence if you are depending on financial instruments right. to give you that freedom. Exactly. If right. all you're doing is uh, exploiting other people, if you're renting them your house yeah. and uh, investing your money in the stock market, which as you just pointed out right. very capably is, you know, profit off of exploited labor, yeah. especially now, um, once you have... Uh, you throw all of that in the bag. Uh, yeah, ultimately, the only thing you became independent from is your boss, which is a worthy goal. Don't get me sure, wrong. Of course, yeah. But you did not in any way become independent from the financial system in which we live. If anything, that is the only thing keeping you afloat. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We have the saying, you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. You know, the idea that you can you know, cut yourself off from the grid and just buy ethically, you know, live your lifestyle without taking part in the system that it can't be done because the system encompasses so much, you know? Right. I, I distinctly remember one of our early shows talking about how like Popeye's chicken is like the poultry farms they use are run by effectively prison labor. Right. You know, there's so much of it is entangled in this web of exploitation that right. no matter where you turn, you're not going to find the, you know, ethical way out. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure some people are going to hear that and just get like deeply bummed. And it's sad. It's, the solution that, is yeah. not to, uh, well, uh, okay, now I can be as unethical as I want. It's, right. Right. It's, Which I, is I, how, I, hopefully it motivates be, yourself to get to work to try and change things. Right. right. You right. have to be aware of the problems posed by our system and work for systemic change because putting the onus on individuals is you're not going to get anywhere with that. Right. The reason that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism is that capitalism aims to make us all complicit. It extorts that out of all of us. It basically says it, it tricks you into making the bad choice and then goes, you made that bad choice. Now you have to make all the other ones just in order to keep, you know, treading water. Mm-hmm. I mean, you already made one. What's the next one? You know, what, what marginal cost does it have to you? And, it aims to turn us all into essentially machines that just give up on trying to find a way out yeah. that is not exploitative for other people. And I think what a lot of these people did is they took a worthy goal, which is never having to work for someone else's profit again. Right. And it made them think, well, I don't want to work for political change because that's hard. <laughs> and it might involve me giving up some of my hard-earned money right. you know, or losing it to taxes or having to – uh, work with icky poor people. So instead, <laughs> right. I'm just going to cut myself off, quote unquote, 72 point air quotes, right. from the system, but I'm not actually going to do anything meaningful to make life better for anyone else. I'm just going to tell them that they should be like me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's a great place to wrap up this particular myth. We probably could go deeper, but uh, I do want to get one last segment in before sure. this show ends. So Sounds we'll be good. back after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. 
If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Earl. Hello. And Noah. Y'all, hi. We've been talking about myths as they relate to work, uh, popular misconceptions about what class means and how you can get yourself out of the working class and into, what was it, the leisured aristocracy? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. yes, that's exactly what it was. Now, we have a, a, a third myth here, which I, I think is very much related to our first about the um, – aesthetic nature of class in the American conception, which is that this idea that unions are something that only people in manufacturing need or deserve. This came up on our last episode when we were talking about the UAW strike, which I should note is still ongoing as of the time of this recording, solidarity Solidarity. with the Mm -hmm. striking workers. Noah, I, I think you were the one who said that people have this idea that I understand a union if you're doing this backbreaking manual labor, but why do basically anybody else need this? And the past week has offered a useful example of why even ostensibly less uh, grueling work, uh, namely journalism, but really any industry you can think of, does need the protection of collective bargaining and collective power. I don't know if either you noticed this – came across on Twitter, uh, Sports Illustrated, which is a huge sports magazine brand in this country, laid off half its staff on Thursday. I didn't Um, know that part. I don't know anything else. But Right. Mm -hmm. The story behind that is that a few months back, Sports Illustrated was bought by one group called like – Maven? Before that even, they were bought by the ABG, like the – which is some – I forget what the first letter stands for, but the last two are Brands Group. Yeah, oh they, they basically have bought up all these sorts of legacy institutions, of which Sports Illustrated sort of is one. It's thought yeah. of as a thing of the past in many ways in our sure. current media landscape. But like they also have the rights like Muhammad Ali's likeness and things like this. These people <laughs> need to be stopped. Honestly, I'm, you know, um, I'm sort of rooting for climate change now. They <laughs> meteor. <laughs> Quickly tossed off Sports Illustrated to this group called The Maven, which received major investment from our favorite media conglomerate, Tronk. Friend of the, <laughs> friends of the show, Tronk. Yes, okay. um, Underwriters. And The Maven has been quick at work putting in its grand plan for the future of Sports Illustrated, which is to turn it from a respected magazine that does investigative reporting on the world of sports into – Effectively, another blog that covers every team in the shallowest way possible and seeks to basically spam out its links to get as many clicks as possible in the process. Great. Uh, Quoting now from a recent Deadspin article about this by Laura Wagner, Kelsey McKinney, and David Roth. Quote, The Maven, which instigated the tortured layoffs of dozens of people on Thursday, claims it will continue to carry on sports illustrations its tradition of high-quality journalism while simultaneously launching hundreds of content farms to churn out local sports news. It will use a model similar to that of the SB Nation team sites, now the subject of two federal collective action lawsuits, fan-sided Sports Illustrated's last exploitative appendage, and Rivals.com and Scouts.com, irrelevant and failed ventures respectively, that were both championed by uh, this guy Levinson, who is now the CEO of Sports Illustrated, and uh, his partner, James Heckman, in the early 2000s. Now, there was a reference to SB Nation, and effectively what SB Nation does is it exploits the the desire a lot of young men especially have to write about sports for a living to basically underpay people who are fresh out of college in order to cover every team you can think of mm-hmm. and give them a very low budget for what used to be the job of a dedicated beat reporter who would be paid well. Yep, that that's that's that in a nutshell. Um, SB Nation is commonly known to be one of the most exploitative parts of Vox Media, mm-hmm. if not the. And uh, now we're just going to replicate that across sports media writ large because there's a lot of team owners and a lot of rich – of people who get rich off athletic labor and uh, – 
who who would really much prefer that for some reason, even though sports mm-hmm. journalism is not at all affecting their bottom line, not remotely, mm-hmm. it isn't, zero effect. Despite that, they would rather not have to read headlines that make them feel bad about what right. they make other people do for their money. Mm-hmm. Um, and the article notes that Levinson has tried this before at the Los Angeles Times. Um, oh, boy. He, back in 2017, as the newly installed publisher of the 138-year-old LA Times, Levinson attempted to turn the paper into a contributor network. His plan was ultimately nixed after he was placed on administrative leave due to allegations of sexual harassment. Oh, um, right. In news that had been underway before his arrival, the LA Times unionized for the first time in its history the day after he b- departed the company. Mm. Good. You know, congratulations. And, yeah, related, but, right. yeah. So to give the details on this business model, they had contacted people who would be running these team blogs effectively for Sports Illustrated. Quote, they said they were told that they would earn between 25000 and 30000 per year with vague opportunities to make extra money by hitting traffic bonuses. Mm-hmm. They would be expected to post three news videos per day to their site. They were to wear Maven polo shirts in these videos as well as hundreds of posts per month. The message was clear, quantity over quality. Prospective Maven partners were told by company execs that if they had trouble creating enough content, they should go to the nearest college and find eager young students who would write for free. These Maven partners would also be required to register themselves as an LLC, presumably so the Maven would avoid any SB Nation-like legal liability for misclassifying workers as independent contractors instead of employees. Wow. Everybody wants to do that. So that's why they're they're doing it, because Mm -hmm. they figured out the way that they can do it without having to pay lawyers. Mm -hmm. Right. Cool. Yeah, awesome. and that's not a that's not a trivial expense either. <laughs> and presumably, the majority of people that would be doing this, they're not going to get any help from Maven on their end, right? And you know, like I have to imagine that that has legal ramifications down the road that they will be sorely not ready to deal with, right? If anything does come down the pike, yeah, for sure. So yeah, yeah no, this is. I mean, it's the gig economy in right. media form. Yeah, isn't it great? Yeah. It, it it is awesome that we exposed literally every outlet that can let us know about anything with any degree of stability to the whims of a bunch <laughs> of rich fill in yeah. word I can't say on the program here. Right. Yeah. It should be noted this is not a problem exclusive to Sports Illustrated. I think right. they're a very high profile example of this, but this sort Including of including st- Deadspin. Yeah. This sort of strategy has been happening to any number of outlets. The digital media landscape is this cycle repeating itself over and over right. for the past five years at least. Yes. Well, I think what it is – and by the way, the reason I mentioned mm-hmm. that's been is because that's the article we're quoting here. Mm-hmm. But um, what it is is that they finally figured it out yeah. until – well, you had the non-tech savvy – same word that I said right. earlier. Um, while, uh, while they didn't know how to use the digital landscape to their advantage, it was fine and it was allowed to survive. The moment they figured it out, they did what they always do, which is these people are vultures. They have no real talent other than networking and being in meetings. I, and I, oh boy. I remembered what the A and A brands group stands for. Authentic. Oh, oh my, my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that's unreal. Um, that's like – that's just made up. That can't be real. <laughs> so – that, so it's not authentic is what you're saying. <laughs> um, continuing from the article, when reporters from the Washington Post called Jamie Salter, the head of the Authentic Brands Group and owner of Sports Illustrated on Thursday afternoon, person. he described the situation at the magazine as awesome. There were some <laughs> – uh, <laughs> So it's going so good. <laughs> there were some obvious reasons to take issue with this answer since he gave it mere hours after a day full of head fakes and delays to mm-hmm. the transition meetings where half of the organization's newsroom was laid off. Yeah. That's like something like the, the, the elevator door opens and they're like, uh, hey, authentic uh, brands guy. How's it going? Awesome. 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 <laughs> As he's like jamming the closed elevator button. The thing like, is, I'm actually going to take I'm actually going to take the under on this. I think he meant it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That dude, it, it, first of all. It's, it's right in the name. It's authentic. Yeah. It's yeah. authentic. Number one. Number two, he yeah. didn't fire those people. Mm-hmm. But he had right. like, you know, George Clooney from up in yeah. the air. He actually there. had. He probably had a great the, day, yeah. Previous owners of Sports Illustrated do the dirty work of 
that is issuing the firings. Oh my wow. god! Yeah, so his day probably was great. He just yeah, had a, he his day was awesome. Took he a little nap, to, had a great lunch. Yeah. So, as you might imagine, the remaining staff at Sports Illustrated had some questions for their new leadership, and there was an all-staff meeting following these layoffs, at which uh, point these quotes come from uh, James Heckman, like the second in charge at uh, The Maven. Terrible name. Quote, anybody here who goes out and says we're going to replace you with a bunch of bloggers and freelancers are harming your fellow journalists. We're here to empower journalists. Nope. We're so passionate about empowering journalism, said Heckman hours after laying off dozens of journalists. Yeah. That is one of those quotes that like every word is false, including <laughs> and and the. Right. Like Even that. literally everything yeah. right. he just said yeah. is the opposite of the truth. Keeps oh, wait, going. wait. It keeps – yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Quote, we've been doing this for decades and our goal is that when you work, you gain equity and you nope. build wealth for your children and your children's children. Wow. That's our goal. Wow. Yeah. So I just – just real – I want to go back to something that Noah was talking about earlier, right, about these people being vultures. That is – Totally and clearly true. But I also want to harken back to something from the last segment uh, because even if they weren't vultures, in order to survive in capitalism, it's an absolute race to the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're because in order to compete, you have to be willing to lower yourself to whoever's whoever has the least scruples, basically. Right. You say, okay, well, I'm willing to do this terrible thing. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to make more money. If your if your competition wants to stay, they have to start doing that terrible thing too. Even in a perfect scenario where everyone is a good like uh, a saint, capitalism you you have it's a race to the bottom. Right, it's always a race to the bottom. And I think that's uh, to harken back to the first segment. Haha, trifecta. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what that does is it enables the right wing critique of capitalism to survive because it lets you point at that and go the same people. Who are, you know, coastal elites and by that they really mean like are friends with people who like don't look like the people who live in your town. Right. Um, those same people are the ones taking advantage of you and the, they're the ones who have no values and they have no scruples and blah, 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 blah. Hmm. And it enables people who think of themselves as good people who understand that there are problems with the economy, who understand that like working people need a break. Every so often, that kind of thing. To yeah. go, oh, but I'm not like them, right? You know, I I have values. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm an honest person. I'm a regular person mm-hmm. who just wants what's best for my country. To harken back to the first segment again, there's you know we talked about this idea that everybody gets to be middle class as opposed to what socialists would say, which is that the working class and capitalist class are opposed, right? And you which know, they are the forces to that. A, make them in opposition, aren't going to change. Quote, and this is not about, you know, being, you know, some big company where we separate work and executives. That just doesn't exist at any of the companies we've built. And in that vein, we believe in ownership. We think indentured servitude is something that, you know, is hundreds of years ago. (laughs) We think that you need to be owners. Don't believe in this executive employee relationship. I think it's toxic. Wow. You I'm know, about you know, to have an aneurysm. Yeah, you know what really sells all that? All the you knows. That that's, that's the part. It's, that's, it's, authentic. Yeah, that's authentic. It's what that is. Right. I, I'm no stranger to the you know, so right. I wasn't yeah. going to. Oh say yeah, that no, it's, no, it's not. I know. I just, I, yeah. Uh, I'm too mad to come up with a uh, good insult. That's all I could. I yeah. Could pick you on. ever, yeah. you ever get so mad that you just can't speak anymore? Like you're just nonverbal. Mm, yeah. That, that's where I am with this guy. That's, I go to flailing at that point. It yeah. just, it, it's. I mean, okay, so. <laughs> relating this through the lens of my own experiences like I, I am very familiar with this particular kind of double speak because i do love that I, I don't know if it's a class you take when you do your mba i don't know if it's just like a talent that you naturally have because if you're this guy you're a sociopath uh, or what it is but the ability to make a speech like that and mm-hmm. to like it you know, this man believed what he was saying when he said it. He might not have believed it the minute after he said it. Yeah. But while he was saying it, he he wanted to sell that. And to do that with words where you mean the exact opposite yeah. of what you're actually saying. I mean, it, it's, it's a not. A, it, yeah. Yeah. It has to be. It, I don't think that can be learned behavior. You know, like I don't think you can sit there in a class with a professor and they can tell you this is how you do it. It, it's it's something that has to come from inside, and you know, I don't respect it at all. Actually, I'm, right. I'm not yeah. even going to pretend that I do. Yeah. 
But it's a common tactic, this idea of, gosh, bringing a union in here would only heighten conflict between bosses, leadership, and the workers. And we don't want that. We're a family here. We're oh, all on man. the same team. And right? we, we're, we're such a good family that half of us just got involuntarily divorced. Right. We, we think unions introduce an adversarial element to the workplace that just isn't us. That See, the word introduce, right? Mm-hmm. They don't. They just reify it. Right, they, right. they make it and they, not even. They don't even reify it. What they do is they balance out the two sides of that conflict. Mm-hmm. They give the side that is already disprivileged the chance to fight back. Right. In conclusion, there's a myth that unions are only for people who work in factories, but it's just a myth and yeah. you shouldn't believe it. And to this point, the Arizona Republic, which is the largest n- newspaper in this state based in Phoenix, that that state rather, is currently in a unionization process in which the uh, Gannett, which owns USA Today, which owns the paper, has been owns the DNC, reportedly right? – What? Owns the DNC, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. The Democrat and Chronicle here in Rochester has been – Management has effectively been spying on employees and has apparently retaliated against employees for their efforts in the unionization. Totally normal family stuff. So, out of work. In other words, I I think what we're trying to get across is that it doesn't matter whether you work in the factory or you work at a newspaper, management is going to treat you the exact same way. Mm -hmm. You need a union no matter what. True. Uh, I think we've uh, just about wrapped up this episode on myths. It's yeah, can we please stop before I actually do have an aneurysm on <laughs> right. I'll try to – I'll be concerned for your health, Noah. <laughs> Thank you. For You're this so week, sweet. I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. I'm Earl. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.